You are listening to Invisible Not Broken, a podcast where we talk about life with chronic illness and everything that goes with it. We interview inspirational leaders, compassionate practitioners, and chronic warriors we just find flat out fascinating. I'm Eva Minkoff, your co-host, fibromyalgia warrior, and founder of Wellacopia, the matching site that helps you find your ideal practitioners for your individual needs. Today's episode is about stigmas and speaking your truth. Meet Allie Cashel. Allie is a chronic Lyme warrior, published author, and organization founder who started a movement through storytelling. Her book and organization, both named Suffering the Silence, support people who struggle for illness recognition, visible and invisible, by helping them speak up and break the stigmas and ignorance that surround misunderstood chronic illnesses. Our conversation covers the unjust power dynamics in healthcare, the struggles in being misunderstood, and how we can grow stronger from other people's stories. I met Allie almost three years ago after reading her book and falling in love with her mission. Since then, we have hosted community events together and remained close during the growth of our initiatives. I'm so glad that Allie was able to come on the show because she's someone I truly admire and feel very lucky to have met. Before we get started, just a reminder that all conversations and health claims on this podcast are based on individual experiences and expertise. Everyone has their own personal and professional truths and should be treated as such. Okay, let's get started. Allie Cashel, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I don't just know you as a leader, I know you as a person, and you are a wonderful human being inside and out. Uh, so I've given you a little introduction, but now I'd like for you to introduce yourself, uh, to tell us your story um, with uh, with Chronic Lyme, uh, as well as uh, uh, Suffering the Silence, your book, Suffering the Silence, your organization, and um, share some stuff about you. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I, I came into work in the illness world um, I sort of like landed here without a plan. I was I was first diagnosed in with Lyme disease in 1998 when I was seven years old. I had a really classic present, presentation of the disease, like tick bite, bullseye, fever, all of the above, um, and was diagnosed right away. Sorry, I'm in Maine right now. Was diagnosed right away um, and went through a short course of antibiotics and sort of everyone assumed that I was cured, I was fine. Um, and it wasn't until I started to go through adolescence that a number of strange symptoms started popping up. I had pretty severe joint pain, severe fatigue, um, a lot of like muscle and skin pain, um, terrible headaches. And we were trying to figure out what it might be. There was rheumatoid arthritis in my family, so we thought maybe it could have been that. Um, but ultimately, um, after a doctor, a local doctor actually approached us and started having conversations about Lyme and um, in the community, we lived in a really endemic area. It was clear that I had, had a lot of the same symptoms and was tested again for um, Lyme and my blood test came back positive, which in the Lyme world is actually um, sort of complicated because not everyone's blood tests come back positive. It's a, uh, about 40%, the tests are accurate only about 40% of the time. So I've actually been really lucky to never have issues with getting a diagnosis around Lyme um, because I've always had very clean and clear blood work. Um, 
So I was diagnosed again. I all through middle school and high school, I was in and out of treatment, which at the time I really didn't know was controversial because I was living in a place that so many people had been affected by Lyme. Um, so many people were in and out of treatment for Lyme disease where I lived, um, working with doctors locally there to maintain symptoms and sort of keep quality of life as high as it could be. Um, and I finally, my, my, my junior year of high school, I, I was actually pretty healthy. I was off all antibiotics. Um, I was feeling good. Like I had a lot of energy. I fell in love for the first time that year. Um, it was just like this amazing killer year. And I sort of thought that my experience with Lyme was, was behind me. Like I thought that I had dealt with it. And that's been sort of a recurring pattern for me in a lot of my life with illness is it's sort of like I get through a tough time and I'm sort of like, ah, oh, it's over, you know, like I'm done, woohoo, I win. And um, it always somehow comes back to sort of rear its ugly head. But um, my senior year of high school, I'm the oldest of five kids and um, really, really, really close to my family. And my senior year of high school, my dad got a job in Boston. I grew up about an hour north of New York City and got a job in Boston. And my family was going to move to um, just outside of Massachusetts. And I was finally healthy. I was finally like attending school and immersed in the community. And the, the, the having to move right before my senior year felt terrifying and scary. And my parents decided, and I decided, we all decided together that it would be, um, I could stay behind and, and finish senior year at the school that I had started. Um, and I would go back to see them whenever I could. Um, but that summer, that they moved, I started to get a lot of the old symptoms coming back. I was in pain all the time. Um, I was really tired, but I didn't really want to say anything because I didn't want to freak anybody out. And I loved this idea of getting to stay and like being in this environment that I wanted to be in so badly. Um, but I clearly should have said something because um, in the fall of that year, just when I started my senior year of high school, I experienced my first neurological symptoms of tick-borne disease. Um, I was in six car accidents in, in just six weeks. Um, I was struggling to read. I was struggling to speak. I was getting uh, lost on my way to school. Some really, really, really scary neurological stuff. Um, and I had never experienced neurological symptoms of Lyme disease before or tick-borne disease before. Um, and so my parents were really scared. And I was really scared, of course, because um, I didn't really know what it was. So we got really lucky to get um, in to see the head of pediatrics at one of the best hospitals in Boston. And um, in our first meeting, he took basically like one look at my file. He met with my mom for about an hour. He didn't do any physical examination, um, talked to me for about 10 minutes and made the diagnosis based on my history of Lyme treatment that I was having a psychiatric response to my parents' move, a mental breakdown basically, and that I was regressing um, to the point of infancy, that's why I couldn't read or write or drive a car because I, I wanted them to come back. Like I missed them, I wanted to be cared for them. Um, and I think that like that for me has been really the moment that has informed most of my work and most of my life and career is um, when you have a, a, a power dynamic like that where um, you know one of the best doctors in the world who supposedly knows everything tells you that you're not physically ill and that this condition is, is entirely in your head, I felt at the time powerless to say anything else. And um, silence sort of by him and by the institution behind him um, and felt like they were not invested in me and what was really going on. Um, and as it turned out, 
I was not only dealing with Lyme, but also with four other tick-borne infections that had never been diagnosed um, that caused pretty severe neurological symptoms exactly like I had. So I was able to um, get back to working with doctors who could help me and who did believe me and who did um, understand what was going on in my body. Um, but it caused a real fissure for me in terms of, allow, of, of understanding the connection between what was happening with my mental health and what was happening with my physical health. And I've, I've obviously come to learn, as I'm sure many of your listeners already know, but they're incredibly intertwined. And um, I had a really hard time accepting that because I was so afraid of admitting that I was suffering at all with mental health um, because I was scared that that would make people think that there was nothing wrong with me physically. Um, and I think in the years since then, that's been a real battle for me in terms of learning how to care for my, my mental health at the same time as caring for my physical health. Um, so I'm very lucky these days to, um, I'm not dealing with active Lyme or tick-borne infection anymore, though I do deal physically with a lot of the um, sort of repercussions of dealing with long-term infection and long-term treatment. And have found some other um, genetic issues that cause uh, some chronic illness-like symptoms as well. So it's not that I'm not dealing with things physically, um, but I'm still learning how to sort of balance that mental health and physical health um, journey all the time. Um, but this whole experience also uh, brought me to make this into my work. I uh, wrote a memoir about my experience called Suffering the Silence and also interviewed a number of other patients from around the world who deal with Lyme um, who face that same sort of dismissal and isolation. And um, through the process of working on that book, learned that that feeling of being dismissed was not unique to Lyme patients and not unique to um, people living with tick-borne disease. This is something that people, especially women and young women, deal with in the chronic illness world across diagnoses. And so I took my work with that book and uh, along with a very close friend of mine who lives with lupus, Erica Lupinacci, started a nonprofit organization also called Suffering the Silence that works to break down the stigma surrounding the experience of chronic illness and disability in general. Um, so that's where I am today. Uh, can you actually tell us a little bit more about you and Erica? Because I thought um, how you guys came to start this together is pretty interesting. Totally, yeah. So Erica and I were, were, were best friends all through high school. Um, and we actually experienced the peaks of our illness at the same time. So both of us got incredibly, incredibly ill senior year of high school. But we talked about everything other than that. We talked about boys and school and drama and whatever play we were in and never addressed the fact that we both had these pretty serious health setbacks at the same time um, and could have really been a huge support for each other and, and were not. Um, and in looking back on that, you know, after we graduated from high school and I was working on the book, we started talking about sort of how strange it was that we felt like we couldn't talk to each other. And if we felt like we couldn't talk to each other, so many people must feel like they can't talk about what they're going, what's going on with them too. Because we were so close, like we talked about everything. And I think that that realization was really what caused us to, to know that we had to do something to help people feel like they could speak up, could, could talk to each other, could talk to their loved ones about what was going on with them to sort of push back against those feelings of isolation, those feelings of dismissal that are often caused by medical trauma or even just interpersonal relationships where they don't feel believed or don't feel understood. Yeah, it's, it's 
it's so remarkable that that's the case. And it still is today, of course, but I think maybe I'm just in this little bubble right now, but I think we're on the up and up where people are more open about it. Luckily, the while there's definitely a stigma around invisible illness and mental illness in particular, I think we're trying to uncover that now and people are making it um, very clear that mental illness is also an illness just like anything physical. Uh, oh, yeah. So I think we're on the road, us as a society. I think we're on the road too. I mean, <laughs> even in the last, you know, Suffering the Silence, the book came out in, in 2015, I think. Yep. So it's been four years. Um, and even since then, like conversations are even just about Lyme disease and tick-borne disease in general have shifted a lot. There's so much more um, acceptance now than there was when I was writing the book and, and even when I was, I was dealing with it myself. Um, so it's, it's very cool to see that progress, but I also am always really aware that even as that progress is happening, there are people right now today who are being diagnosed with these conditions um, and who aren't getting the support that they need and who are having really negative silencing interactions with doctors um, or silencing interactions with friends and family. And just because we are seeing a lot of that progress doesn't mean that we don't need to be doing work to support the people who are living with these conditions and having these experiences right now. Absolutely. And, and just in case you don't recognize this enough, you are one of the reasons that this is happening, like the, the, that this progress is happening. Is it you writing your book and, and the events you put on and, and um, the artistic contribution, all the things that you and Erica do are a huge reason for why this, this does exist in the public, that, that we are starting to hear about it. So thank you. And it's funny, as you're saying this, I don't know why I didn't realize it, but that's probably what led me to contact you. So just to take us back, I'm actually, you know, I could pull up the email, but <laughs> I don't want to interrupt right now. Um, but I actually remember writing it pretty well. I remember being at my kitchen table, looking at Suffering the Silence, reading about you guys, and being so excited. I like more excited than I had been about writing most emails. I don't know if you remember me telling you this after the yeah. fact. Yeah. Um, I just, I wrote like a freaking paper to you. <laughs> just like, I love everything. <laughs> it's really cool. And I think like getting to connect with people like you is, is a huge part of what's so amazing about this work is that there are so many people out in the universe who are doing work to help support this population of people. And we're, we are sort of all doing it in silos or we're starting or we all started our own silos sort of um because most of this work comes out of need right we see something yeah. or experience something ourselves that um we feel like needs to change and so then we start doing that in our own lives in our own universes but i think the more that we can come together and and connect with each other and sort of join forces the the faster this bigger cultural change to sort of break down stigma and and create a better understanding of these life experiences will happen because it's 40% of the population of people. Um, just in, in, in the US, it's 133 million people who are dealing with these conditions. Um, the fact that we still can't talk about it, like at a cocktail party or at the office, um, makes very little sense, um, to me at least. And so I hope that by like connecting with, like as we've done work, working together and the more that people can do that, um, I'm hopeful that we can start to really move the needle. Yeah. 
By the way, I, I, so I've had to look up a lot of statistics lately because I have a startup and we mm -hmm. have to. <laughs> and, um, a couple of surprising ones. Um, uh, I'm actually annoyed because one of them is in front of me. It's either 92 or 96, but whatever, it's 90s. Um, high um, of people with chronic conditions are misdiagnosed. Yeah, exactly. And that's like, that's crazy to think about is that I, I also think so much about how I'm a real believer in, in the, the power of, of dialogue in general. Mm -hmm. um, like when people start talking about things, whether it's like in their own houses or um, more publicly online, if they're writing about it. But I think any, any place that these conversations are happening start to really like slowly change the way that people think about something. And let's say you have been misdiagnosed and you do feel like you can talk about your symptoms someone else is likely dealing with something really similar to you. And I've seen this happen where, where people will start talking about something that they're going through and they, someone will be like, oh my God, have you thought about blah de blah um, And it's like a light bulb goes off in their head and suddenly they're on the path to finding a, a better diagnosis. Um, a more accurate diagnosis is probably a better thing to say. I, I think that like there's so much power in just being able to talk about it, but we have to find strength and comfort in being able to do that um, because so many of us have been told basically that we shouldn't. Uh, it's, it's a hard sort of balance to strike, I think. Yeah. And I personally still, it's amazing. I'm all about communication too, right? Like Wellacopia is a matching app, but it's about a human relationship and connecting that dialogue, right? And Every time I'm at a cocktail party or a professional thing or, or what have you, I'm meeting people, I still hesitate sometimes. But I also remember, well, now if someone's going to ask me what I do, and it's going to be pretty obvious <laughs> that I have a chronic condition, but I still think about it, right? It doesn't fall off my tongue, if that's the expression. Um, uh, in fact, I love it now when I'm at events that are truly nothing related to my career or illness. Like I'm at a networking event here in Rochester and uh, I start talking, they're like an accountant. Actually, this has happened. They're an accountant. Um, and you know, at a networking event, people are really looking, what can they get out of it? And that's fine. Yeah. How it is. Um, and I tell this guy, like I've got a healthcare startup and it's about chronic illness. And then I start talking about the mission and, and I see his eyes change. Mm -hmm. They're like wide and you can see he's just in it. And I'm happy to say I get that a lot of the time because this resonates, like what we do with Bellacopia resonates with most people on some level. But this guy, he was having terrible, terrible gastrointestinal issues and could not find a doctor to help him. And, um, and he wasn't telling anyone about it either. He would like said, I just tell my wife, you know, I got like a stomach ache. Right. And he got kind of emotional. And um, I don't want to say I was happy about it, but you know what I mean? I was like, I'm really glad that we can have this moment together and that what I'm doing resonates with you. And and um, and, and actually I found him someone, so that's great. Uh, check in on him. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the, the fact that we think it's... Um, so I really wanted to talk about stigma. Um, yeah. Something you're obviously very familiar with. We're all very familiar with. Uh, we're afraid to say something because it might make us look weak or people don't believe us. Um, actually, one of the other um, 
one of the other statistics is that 36% of people are told it's all in their head. Yeah, yeah. I actually think it's more than that, but <laughs> it's definitely 36%. Um, yeah. yeah, it's, uh, I mean, you, you had that for a very long time, a very, you know, I had doctors tell me essentially the same thing too, right? But, um, and I guess they were great doctors, like on paper, New York City, Park Ave sure. doctors. But like you said, you had this, this, um, I don't know what kind of doctor he was, but you said someone who uh, was high up on the ladder, really well respected, and and you, yeah, it makes sense at the time. You assume, well, they must be right. Like they, yeah, I think we're taught they know best. <laughs> I think the other thing that's very real and that I always feel a real need to say is like they, they do, you know, like they, it's the, these doctors know what know a lot. It's not that they their perspective or um their practice is 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 wrong in any way i think it's just that the way that our medical system is set up it's it's very narrow um and it doesn't leave a lot of room for people to think outside the box of of what else could be going on so if something presents in one way that they've seen before it's it's you know it's whatever it's like you don't don't if you hear hoofbeats in the forest don't think it's a zebra or whatever um you think it's a horse and I think that's that's a decent instinct. It's just that so much of the time um, people get, they slip through the cracks with that. And I think um, just more awareness of that process is important. And I think the other thing that's like that you brought up that I think is really important as it relates to stigma um, is also just like an awareness of power dynamics. Um, like in my situation, I was like a 17 year old girl and he was, you know, a, a 50 something year old man. And there are power dynamics in that room that we need to be aware of all the time um, that, you know, no one, no one tells you about when you're a young woman who's dealing with health issues that you're gonna have to be navigating that as well. Um, and I think there are so many things that we don't talk about, health and illness being one of them, but also just this, just this acknowledgement of the way that those types of dynamics influence our, our care and our health and um, the way we move through the world all the time. Uh, I wish I had been able to talk about that more as a young woman, for sure. Parents are a big one too, that I think gets confusing because there's, there's usually that natural power dynamic of we are your elders, we are your caretakers. Sure. You know, respect, what we have to say is gonna be right. Although when you're teenagers, you always wanna fight against that. <laughs> but, but anyway, um, I guess I'm just thinking of my dad, my wonderful father, who I still honestly to this day wonder if he truly gets and believes, but I'm not gonna hate on him for that. Um, he definitely called me a hypochondriac when I was young, for sure. And he saw doctors as gods. Basically what they say is it's gotta be right, they know best. And like you said, most of the time they do. Yeah. Um, but he, but I always struggled with that because my dad is very smart. My dad is loving. Um, these doctors are smart and some of them were loving. Yeah. I started to think I was freaking nuts. <laughs> like really? Yeah. yeah we all do, right? Um, I think most of us at, at some point or another, if we're told it's all in our heads, um, I mean, I don't know how often this is that we fight back immediately, but I think we all at least at some point consider, well, maybe it is all in my head. I mean, I consider that all the time still, you know, like that's, that's, <laughs> that's well, like different parts of it. It's like, I know that I have pain. It's more like maybe the severity of something at certain points. I'm like, 
is this really as bad as I think it is right now or what's going on? I, I think that like, so I, I've been thinking a lot about that phrase, like all in your head as a dismissive phrase. Um, and it, it's troubling to me because to say something's all in your head and sort of being like, okay, you're out, like this is not my problem anymore, implies that if, if it was in my head, right? Like let's say I was having a psychiatric breakdown, um, that, that should not be dismissed. Like no. that's a very, that's a very, very, very serious um, and life altering thing to have happened. Like if that, ha if, that, if that had been the root of it, like I was not met with the level of care that I was supposed to and, or I should have been. And is that because we're not invested in general and mental health experiences? We dismiss young women's narratives of their experience all the time anyway. Like I, I think that there are so many levels at which that phrase, it's all in your head, it can be really, really damaging to patient experiences because it, it ignores their physical experience. But if what happened to me is similar to what happened to anybody else, it creates this intense fissure of being like, well, that means mental health is not important, or that means mental health should not be, you know, um, taken seriously. And that's really troubling. Um, and has, has ult really, if I'm honest, in the last 10 years has been like, that's been the biggest battle is, is learning how to accept and come to terms with my mental health and, and the way that it intersects with physical health for me. Yeah, I, I could not agree more. And thank you for saying that. I've, I have said on other episodes, so like a lot of the practitioners I bring on, which I, I think this is, it's not coincidental. I could bring, a, I talk to all these different practitioners and somehow we always get on the topic of basically the mind-body connection yeah. and why they're intrinsically connected to, to one another. There is no separation. Um, and whether that goes for chronic stress causing physical pain or it goes for mental health being its own kind of pain. Um, and that goes along with this, um, this movement, thank God, about um, identifying mental illness as an illness. Yeah. Um, because it because it is <laughs> and yeah that's what I was thinking when you talked about um how he said this was a, a psychiatric issue it's like okay well that's a medical issue yeah and and needs to be met <laughs> a pretty intense intervention um I I think I think about that all the time um and I think you know through our work with suffering the silence one of the things that we do is we um we do a number of, of photo journalism campaigns, portraits, things like that to give people an opportunity to, to tell their story in some, on, in some platform in some way. And we just recreated our original Suffering the Silence portraits that we did um, four years ago, five years ago now. And we made sure to include a mental health diagnosis in this group of people um, that we featured because I think it's so important to acknowledge um, as we talk about any sort of chronic condition, the impact of, of mental health um, and sort of the in, importance of inclusion of mental health in that category. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm also really glad that you're, you're doing more of those portraits. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Them. They're amazing. They're amazing. Um, I mean, I'm going to have this in the show notes, of course, but you guys all need to go to Suffering the Silence because there are so many beautiful displays of, oh wait, is it .com or .org? Either. <laughs> oh, very nice. You have both. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I don't know. Yeah. Both. Um, yeah, you have uh, so many um, wonderful exhibits of these um, photos. And now 
um, films. Actually, yeah, I want to hear about what you're developing. This uh, documentary called, what was it? It's called Trust Me, I'm Sick. Um, yes. So, yeah, so it's a, a five-piece documentary of short episodes. They're, um, you know, around five minutes each, five to six minutes each. Um, and we've been really lucky to partner with a filmmaker, Sarah Stewart, and uh, Arlo Pictures is her production company, who um, has created the films, and we've been working with her um, to create them. Erica, my co-founder, is actually a co-creator on these films as well. And what they do is they tell the story of um, a group of people, all of whom have different diagnoses, and explore the way that illness influences certain aspects of our life. So like um, illness and work, illness and relationships, um, illness and mental health, um, all different, different things like that to try and take a, a look at the way that this influences our whole life and our whole identity as people, um, not just our identity as a patient. Because I think a lot of times in this world, it's like, oh, you have lupus and therefore you're like patient 542 or whatever, you know? You're, we don't understand the, the full picture of the way that this affects us as human beings. Um, and I think that's where a lot of the most interesting, interesting conversations are to be had, you know, like if you're living with a long-term illness, how does that affect your job or your sense of success, um, the rhythm of your day? It's not so much about, you know, it doesn't always need to be about what your physical symptoms are, um, which are important to talk about, of course, but also like, who are you as a person and how has this shaped you as a human being who's moving through the world and how can we best support you as friends, as allies, as, you know, husbands and wives or whatever that you are to, to live as complete and as satisfying as a life as you possibly can. Now it's time for a short break, but unlike typical podcasts with ads, I have something more important to share with you today. Wellacopia has only been live for a few months. And already we have people seeking practitioner matches in 42 states and five countries. We're thrilled that so many of you have come to Wellacopia to find the right care, but our unexpected national reach is making it harder to keep up, but we're not going to give up. Wellacopia is a community, not just a company, and community means working together. In order to bring on enough practitioners to support Wellacopia's growth around the country and the world, we need your trusted referrals. If you have a medical or wellness provider you love and trust, gift them to another warrior by joining Wellacopia and submitting your referral. Thousands of you are listening to this podcast. If each of you recommends just one practitioner, Hundreds of thousands of chronic illness warriors like you will benefit. You may even be saving someone's life. If you don't have a health professional to recommend, you can still help us help you. The more people we have on Wellacopia, the faster the community grows and the better the matches will be. Joining takes just two minutes. It's free. And whether you recommend a practitioner or not, just by signing up, you are making a difference in the future of healthcare. Wellacopia matches people with practitioners who are best for them, not just as patients, but as people, because the patient-practitioner relationship is a human relationship. Matching with the right doctor should be treated with just as much care as matching with the right life partner. 
After all, they may actually be your life partner in your health journey. Through matchmaking, those with chronic illnesses will feel heard and cared for, and practitioners will feel fulfilled in their purpose as health professionals. At the end of the day, we're not cars going to see mechanics. We're all people connecting with people. Join our mission to humanize healthcare. Be part of something big, really big. Believe in yourself and your community to make a difference in our healthcare system without having to rally or sign petitions, without even having to leave your bed. By joining Wellacopia, you are automatically part of the mission to create better patient-practitioner relationships, and better relationships lead to better health outcomes and quality of life. Please pause this podcast, take the next two minutes to join Wellacopia, and don't forget to recommend a great medical or wellness practitioner if you have one. Thank you. Those of you who have joined have made a difference. If you have any questions or feedback or want to partner with Wellacopia's mission in any way, feel free to send me an email at eva, that's E-V-A, at wellacopia.com. Now let's get back to the show. What I admired actually in my GP over the last few years is that he he would always have me come in and, and ask um, what's going on. Mm-hmm. And so I would start talking about fibro or something physical that was going on. And, and he said, no, what's, what's going on with you in your world? Like, what's up? And I loved that he did that because he knew that the full picture is how he could be uh, best. You, well, knowing the whole picture is how he could be the most proactive in my care. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, that's so important. And, and I think the other thing that's really important with talking about sort of the way that this influences life in general, it's, it's something that we've been trying to do in all of our storytelling work is really a push towards that is people who have not experienced illness personally are often really afraid of engaging in a conversation about it ever. They're like, oh, that's too sad. That's too dark. That's, that's not something I can talk about. Um, so if we frame the conversation instead around, you know, challenges at work, right? Like everybody can talk about that. Everyone has had some experience that they can immediately relate to. If my story is shaped around the way that I manage fatigue through my workday, that suddenly becomes less scary to talk about because it's something that they're, they have an, an sort of like an empathy entry point to. Um, and I think that creating these bridges for people um, so that it's not such a scary conversation or it's not such a sad conversation um, really helps engage people who have not yet experienced this or have hopefully will never experience this um, to be able to talk about it more openly. Um, and actually connect with it. So storytelling, storytelling in general, that's like, that's your thing, which I love. I, I love that basically the mission is to, to speak out and tell your story in whatever way. Actually, this is what I usually say at the beginning of a podcast is tell your story in whatever way that you want to tell it. Yeah. Um, that could, that could be very specific about your illness. If that's some for that's one way you want to frame how you get the word out there about yourself and about others. Or it could be, this is my life. Illness is a small drop in the bucket. And sure. yeah. What can you tell us some differences you've seen in storytelling? Like the, yeah. Yeah, the variations in how people like to express themselves. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I'm like obsessed with storytelling. I think, I mean, humans love stories. We like as, as a species, we love stories. Um, we've always loved stories. So I think um, in general, like in many different parts of the world, we could do a better job of using stories to help us fulfill sort of the missions that, that we want, whatever that social good or whatever you're trying to do. I think storytelling should be a, a really key part of it because um, something happens inside of us when we listen to people tell stories. Um, we lean forward, we um, are immediately engaged in a way that we would not be if someone uh, didn't create a, a narrative structure or um, sort of drop us into wherever their experience was. So we, we also, we run a retreat every year. That's a storytelling retreat um, called the Spoonie Collective um, in partnership with Xena Mountain Farm. And so we get to see people go through this process of figuring out how they want to tell their story every year. Um, and it's always really interesting because some people have this um, sort of immediate desire to tell like their diagnosis story and they feel like their story is the story of how they got diagnosed. Um, and we always sort of encourage people to say like, okay, like what's a different story that you could tell, you know, like something that's not a diagnosis story. Because if we put on a storytelling night and everybody got up on stage and said, I was diagnosed in 1998 and here's what it looked like and here's what my symptoms were, like the audience would not be engaged. So what we try and do is we try and say, what's, what's some, something that has happened in your life that has been influenced by your experience of illness, for example. So I remember the first year I told this story about um, my now husband who I started dating in, in high school um, and how I was like totally obsessed with him because I thought he was this like rock star, um, you know, high school theater kid, which is not a thing, but I thought it was a thing. <laughs> uh, and talk about, like I told the story of meeting him and like the first time we really started talking and the way that like illness sort of shaped our relationship over those years. So the story was not really about my experience of illness as a high school student. The story was about my first high school boyfriend. And that's something that really anybody would want to hear a story about, right? Because they've all had a first high school boyfriend or many of them have. Or we'll talk about, you know, one of my favorite stories that we've had at the Spoonie Collective is, is about this hike that this, um, woman Erin did this long trek. She has fibromyalgia and the story is about her, her trek. It's about her trip, her, her 40 mile walk. But through that, you start to hear sort of how fibromyalgia shaped that for her, what it felt like for her, what the challenges were because of this condition, right? So what I found is that the, the most powerful stories about our illnesses come from talking about our lives as, as people and finding the, the way that illness has shaped that or colored that or something. It's almost like it makes it from a black and white film into a color film. It's, it's like the thing that gives the story life, but the story is not about the illness itself. Oh, Allie, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I love that so much. Uh, I'm, and as you're, as you're saying this, I'm trying to think of what are stories I would tell? I mean, I, I love, I love stories and yeah. um, I, I, I love storytelling. I'm a performer and <laughs> uh, I don't know why for like, I could tell stories all the time, but interestingly, I wouldn't connect them, which is maybe a good thing, right? Um, totally. yeah. Like I'm a big traveler and absolutely travel, travel is definitely impacted by my conditions. Um, yeah. I usually brush it off to the side as like, a, well, yeah, I had this great experience, but uh, you know, this kind of sucked because I was like at a commission for a day or something. Um, but 
yeah, it, it can be wrapped into the story, but it is not the story. Exactly. And I think that that's like a really important thing for anybody who's like in the, in like the depths of, of really intense symptoms too. Like your life is not your illness. Um, like your life is your life and your illness is a huge part of that. Um, but like wherever you are right now is going to be different to tomorrow. Um, you know, like it might be worse. Um, but that's still a different story than the story you would tell today. Um, hopefully it's better. But I think that like the lack of permanence of storytelling is also something that I really has been helpful for me as I understand my own journey and have like come to accept a lot of my own journey um, is like the way that stories change over time has helped me realize, uh, you know, that like I won't be, I won't be in pain forever or I won't be, um, depressed forever I won't be something forever um that's been really helpful for me I what's your opinion on identity with illness so I, I'm thinking the difference between um illness being who you are and then identifying as someone with an illness I I see actually like a little difference so I'm thinking about um I was actually comparing this with someone the other day okay I'm just I guess I'll give an example like uh, my friend has fibromyalgia mm -hmm. and it took a long time for people around her to really recognize that she has fibro and now it's not an issue and people get that's, that's her life. Uh, but she's also bi and she's married to a man and that like the not believing that she was bi was just as hurtful as, sorry, they, the, people we were talking with couldn't understand why it was just as hurtful as not believing that she had fibro. And she said, they're both part of my identity. So regardless of me being married to a man, me being bi is a part of my identity. So is fibromyalgia. Yeah, I think that's so legit. I mean, I think in general, like, there's a lot of progress being made around this, but people have sort of thought of identity as a, as a singular thing for a long time. Um, hmm. You know, what it meant to be a woman, for example, was, was one thing. Um, what it meant to be a man was like one thing. And it, what it meant to be a black man was different than what it meant to be a white man or whatever. And that's still very much the case, of course, in the way that we, we don't think of um, the way we think about race. Uh, but I, I think that what the progress that we are making is, is accepting that our identities are complex and um, there's intersectionality in all of us. Some of us um, have many more intersexing identities than others, but I think that there are complex components to our identities regardless of who we are. Um, and that might be gender, that might be race, that might be uh, health status, that might be disability status, and that might change over time. Um, like there are times in my life where looking back, I would certainly identify as a person with a disability. Right now, I don't identify as a person with a disability. Um, so I think that like we're able to, as a, as a culture and society, accept the intersectionality of identity and, and sort of the complexity of identity more and more. Again, this is all slow progress and the more we talk about it, I believe the, the better we'll do. But I think um, illness as identity, we actually have a photo project called Illness and Identity um, in the same way that like my gender or my sexuality is a huge part of the person who I am. Um, my illness is a huge part of the person who I am because it has shaped the way that I move through the world in the same way that as a, as a 
woman I, I has shaped the way I move through the world. Like my, my whiteness has shaped the way that I move through the world. Um, and to not acknowledge a, a piece of, of one of those really formative things, um, I think isn't helpful. Um, and we need to acknowledge basically what our privileges are through those experiences. Um, and also what, what our privileges are not, you know, like if you're somebody who has lived with serious health setbacks or disabilities, like what, ha what, what has that, what effect has that had on your life? Um, I think that's a totally legit thing to think about. I love that you say move, like moving through life. Mm -hmm. That is a point. Um, Cause that, that really is, it's what's your, your context, right? And as you move through life and that changes. Uh, and yeah, you definitely don't have to have a singular identity or, or even just the same one of your identities for the rest of your life. And as we're talking about this, I'm actually wondering, do I identify as someone with an illness? Um, and I'm honestly not sure of the answer. It's weird. Yeah. Yeah. And I think part of who I am, especially because my, um, my career, I guess, um, my, what I, my mission revolves around me have, having an illness and being part of this community. But mm -hmm. as, as a person, as an individual, let's pretend like I didn't have Wellacopia. Do I identify as someone with an illness? And yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm like really stuck on this because the, the battle in my head right now is, but Eva, you're such a powerful person. How could you identify with someone as an illness? And I hate that that's what came to my mind first. Yeah, that, that's right. That's this internalized stigma that we have about people who... Yeah, got a stigma on myself, so... <laughs> yeah, but that's yeah. work that we need to be doing around like dismantling so many of our internalized beliefs um, that are not fair to certain groups of people. I think like disabilities are a really interesting thing to think about there and, um, you know, the ways that languages are shifting around even like differently abled versus disability and how people own, some, some people really own the identity of being disabled and some do not. That hasn't been as clear with the illness world, but I think the same sort of idea and, and theme would ring, ring true for people living with illness as, as it is in this book there. Yeah, it really is a very fascinating, uh, I think, trip, a fascinating trip to take with yourself. Yeah, mm -hmm. and like a worthwhile one, I think. Yeah, definitely. And I'm someone who's very introspective. So I think it's interesting that I haven't done that enough with this. Because I very yeah. much identify as someone with an illness when I think generally in relation to, well, a copy and I'm, and I'm proud. I've not, there's nothing, I mean, there's definitely nothing wrong with it. <laughs> but there's, yeah. you know, it's like I have no problem talking about it ever, ever. Uh, but would I, if Wellacopia wasn't, like something daily that I was talking about or, or thinking about. Um, and I don't know, uh, but I highly recommend everyone listening that if you don't know how you identify in, in, in all sorts of ways, not with illness, just anything, it might be a fun trip to take with yourself on your identity and explore what it used to be too and what it is. Yeah, I think it's like accepting that it can change. Um, mm -hmm. like lack of permanence in we, we humans change so much like we change all the time the person who I was yesterday is not the person who I am today and I think that that's been really liberating for me um yeah. and realizing that's been really liberating for me but I'm sure for other people would be like totally 
sound crazy, but it's been a good, good thing for me to do. And what was the name of the, the project, the illness and identity? It's called illness and identity. Yeah. It's a, it's a photo documentary project. Great. And that's on suffering the silence. Yes. Indeed. All right. That's great. So I actually would love to talk more about you as a, um, whatever word you want to put on it, like influencer, leader, advocate, someone who speaks for, for this community. What has that been like for you? What have you seen come from it? And then how have you seen, actually you're, you're, we're talking about um, changing and how we're different every day. How have you seen yourself change during all of yeah. this? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I think, I, so for me, um, being super involved in the community, I, I very rarely think about myself as somebody who speaks on behalf of the community, but rather, I think I've, I've, I try and use my story to create spaces for other people to, to share their stories. Um, because I think sort of like, who am I to speak on behalf of anyone? Um, but if, if, I can, if I can speak with other people, um, that, that's where I would feel the best. And so the work that I'm the most proud of, I think, is when, um, when I'm doing the least talking, when other people um, are the people who are sort of taking the stage and um, and sort of shaping their dialogue or shaping the conversation around their experiences. But I think in the process of doing that, one thing that's been so helpful for me is like learning from other people's strength and, and other people's journeys um, because I'm so often in in spaces and in conversations about health and about like caring for yourself and and like how you can manage health over a long period of time and, and manage illness over a long period of time. Like a lot of people do it much better than I do. <laughs> and so I, I, I think the way that I've changed is I've come to accept so, so many things about my own journey by hearing it reflected in other people. Um, like even a lot of the mental health stuff, for example, like a lot of my acceptance around my own struggles with mental health and the connection between my mental health and my physical health came from talking to other people who had similar experiences and realizing like, wow, I'm not, it's not like me alone on this island over here. Like I can, I can see myself reflected in them. Um, and I think, I think that that's really, that if any, if anything, like as a, as a leader or somebody who, who is speaking about illness and this, this, these types of things a lot, I hope that I, I hope that my, somebody else can see themselves reflected in my story and that that then gives them more strength to speak about their own. Um, cause I think that's what that I would hope anyway, in, in my role as somebody who's more vocal. That's a really weird answer. I'm sorry. Yeah, great. <laughs> It is, people do learn and absorb things differently or process things differently. Uh, but I do think in general that listening to someone else's story uh, is a great way to reflect on your own because that's honestly how we naturally are. Right. Um, there's yeah. nothing wrong with that. Like a, a negative word would say we're self-centered, but like it, that's not what it is at all. It's more like, okay, this is what this person's going for and I feel for this person and I'm engaged in this person. Now, how do I relate to it? How is it relevant to, to my world? Yeah. Uh, I also think we all are sort of self-centered, you know, like, I, I, like we are. <laughs> like we, we're humans and we kind of need to be as long as we're not just about us. Exactly. Yeah. But I think that like, 
that's been such an amazing part of this whole journey for me and like has has facilitated so much change and personal growth is like to just be around other people who can talk about this stuff and are really comfortable talking about this stuff it's take, it's, it took me a really long time to feel comfortable um openly talking about a lot of this there there are still things that i really struggle to talk about um about my illness experience and the way that it's like impacted family dynamics or things like that i like really have a hard time talking about and there are other people who i who i work with who attend our events who, who we photographed or whatever who are amazing at talking about that stuff you know like they're so well rehearsed and they've they've already done all this emotional work to explore that and when i see that happen i'm like that's amazing like how how can i learn from this person how can i mimic this person to to bring that into my own version of healing or whatever weird journey i'm on um so I think like that's the coolest thing that happens with this and like has facilitated so much growth is like we just learn so much from each other all the time. Whoa. We learn so much from each other all the time. It's uh yeah, I actually I have to I totally agree with that in uh my own community as well. Um I I thought for a while that I actually couldn't identify with a lot of um seekers or, or patients or whatever users of Wellacopia uh, because a lot of the people who who are on there are are much more sick or, or frequently than I am and I thought wow maybe I won't be able to connect with them as much or maybe rather they will think that I can't connect with them as much and that was a really stupid bias on my end because we all have our individual journeys um, but I haven't found that at all in fact, um, I've really noticed that we learn from each other and we, we have different experiences, even though there's common denominators. So we're, we've, like I, I text like every user that comes on and it's great having conversations. I wish they were face-to-face, -face. really wish they, they were, but they're all around the world. Um, and uh, yeah, it's amazing whether it could be uplifting or, or grounding, uh, it's just everyone is so, so different in what they have to share or also what they're struggling with. I might be struggling with something more intensely than someone is who is much more ill, like in and out of hospitals. Um, and they can make me see something a certain way and advise and, and maybe that could inspire them in different parts of their life that's hard. It's, I love connecting with humans. <laughs> and like, for the most part, I think people tend to be, they want to be supportive of each other. Like they want to, I think mostly people are good. And a lot of times no one believes or think people think I'm like overly idealistic or whatever, but I really do believe that most people have like goodness in them. And um, like when we give people an opportunity to support each other and to empathize with each other and to connect with each other in a way that doesn't feel, uh, dismissive to any of those parties like their life experiences like there's kindness that comes all the time and like I see it all the time it's just a matter of like creating those spaces where we can um talk openly about what our lives are like and how we need support and um how we can give each other support so yeah I love that about this work I I 100% agree about there being goodness in pretty much everyone I think exceptions might be sociopaths I don't know but you know like real exceptions yeah humans have goodness in them so but i understand why people would think we're like overly optimistic or 
what have you. Uh, but my, my view is that everyone has a reason for being who they are. Um, and I'm not going to talk nature versus nurture. I mean, more like, like genetics aside, actually, I will say, um, you might have a predisposition to being more moody or something like that, but <laughs> I know I am, uh, but every person has a story for why they are who they are. They often don't know their stories, which is, which is sad. And that's something to look into and why therapy is great and all of that. Um, but everyone got to where they are today from things that happened to them, things that they experienced, things that they um, responded to. So mm -hmm. as we all know, you can be traumatized um, by something where another person would not be traumatized by it, right? That's just an extreme example of how everyone experiences things differently. And I hate that this world is so intolerant of that. It's like, well, if I don't feel that way about something, why do you feel that way? Yeah, and that's yeah. why, um, you know, maybe we'll be upset about someone being whiny when we don't understand why they would be whiny. I mean, there's a bazillion examples I could give, but when it comes to human connection, I think we, everyone can connect with everyone if they're open-minded to the fact that that person has a reason for being the way they are. Yeah, and definitely. yeah, it's, um, it's hard, especially when that other person won't budge and they mm -hmm. want to stay in their world of not understanding the other person or, or maybe just don't want to connect. But I found that when I open the floor for vulnerability and honesty, um, that usually I, I'll get in return. Oh, okay. I guess I can do that too. So if I say vulnerability, meaning I don't want to go on a whole tangent about this, but vulnerability doesn't mean being weak. And I, for some reason, it's gotten that rap. I do not know why. Um, vulnerability, meaning um, exposing the things about yourself that maybe you don't want people to see, admitting that you're wrong, and um, you know the the underbelly, as as Monica likes to say. Uh, so I feel like I've had a much easier time connecting with people. One might be because when I talk about my illness, that's like, hello, you know, quote unquote flaw or a thing that is not perfect about me. Uh, but in general, talking about sadness, uh, depression or bad things I've done or, or things that are hard to talk about. And then other people will talk about the things that are hard to talk about. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think that happens a lot. Um, I think that happens a lot. And I think that that's the goal with, um, all of this work is to like help to facilitate more and more of those types of conversations. Absolutely. Uh, I, I really hope that from this episode, everyone listening, um, feels inspired to look deeper into what their stories are and then share them with others because that, that is the um, easiest thing we can do, but for some reason seems like the hardest. Definitely. Yeah. But you can. But you can, you totally can. Um, whether it be verbally in the written drawing, um, and Ali and, and Erica through Suffering the Silence have showed that there's so many ways to express yourself, to tell your story and, uh, and there will be more to come yes. on that. So I'll definitely be including in the show notes everything that you're doing. Wonderful. Please 
yeah, everyone, please um, follow Suffering the Silence. Take um, take a look at their past work and what they're doing now. I am so happy that I reached out to you almost three years ago and looked to connect you. because you are a mover and a shaker. Thank you. So are you. It's wonderful to get to be on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Ali. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Invisible Not Broken podcast. If you haven't already, please take the next 30 seconds to do these three things. Hit that subscribe button, tap those pretty stars to give us a rating, and share with one spoony friend. Stay tuned for our 100th episode next week. Woo! This episode was brought to you by Wellacopia. Join the movement to help chronic illness warriors like you, like us, match with the right care. Until next time, be kind, be gentle, be badass.